When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Stories on This Week in FCPA, episode 264, the Infrastructure Bill edition include Navex Global has a new benchmark report out, conducting a double materiality assessment, Donata Casal in Practical ESG, what are the dangers lurking in investigations? Mike Volkoff explores in corruption, crime, and compliance. What can ethical refugees teach us about ethics and compliance? Richard Shell in CCI. Running a design sprint. Carson Tams with part four of his five-part series on design thinking. Amazon was tagged for 746 million euros for GDPR violations from a quarterly compliance news alert. What are the factors driving change in the investigative process? Jacqueline Jagger explores in Compliance Week. What is the Achilles heel of compliance? Scott Moritz explores in the LinkedIn article. What about Ted Lasso and corruption? Harry Casson looks at the confluence in the Apple TV show. And 100 bottles of booze on the wall. Jeff Kaplan in the Conflict of Interest blog. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 264 for the week ending, August 13, 2021, the Infrastructure Bill Edition. As the Tokyo Olympics have concluded and the Biden administration passes an infrastructure bill, Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective interest on this week in FCPA, the Infrastructure Bill Edition. So, Jay, what say you? I say let's start building on this week's uh, stories, and let's hit the first one up. Well, Jay, the first one is a new report out from Navex Global, the definitive, and let me emphasize the definitive risk and compliance benchmark report. Um, I think most compliance professionals are well aware of Navex Global's propensity for uh, really stunning uh, reports, and this is one that uh, everyone really needs to take a look at. Uh, some of the key findings from this year is that uh, the risk and compliance sector is rapidly maturing. That's something that uh, I think we have seen in our professional careers in compliance, Jay. Interestingly, the pandemic did not significantly disrupt compliance, although it did uh, change priorities because our risks change. 
many compliance professionals still believe that they are under-resourced um, and that leadership's commitment to compliance wavers in changing circumstances. Uh, probably not a great finding, nevertheless, not too surprising. And organizations are good at acquiring uh, data, but not really uh, effective is in utilizing it. And Jay, I think that speaks to something that we talk about on this podcast. We talk about it on everything compliance. We talk about it on uh, compliance into the weeds. And that's really, um, one, do you have access to the data? And two, do you use the data? And that's where I think the Department of Justice is going. And that's really the finding I think is most significant uh, for the compliance professionals going forward. We've linked to it, of course, in the show notes. I encourage everyone to download it and read it. There are various summaries on the NAVEX uh, global website. And of course, the report's at no charge for download. So good stuff again from uh, NAVEX Global. Jay, you want to tell us what a double materiality assessment is? We'd love to, Tom. This comes to us from Lawrence Himes' practicalesg.com blog. And the story comes to us from Donata Calais. Um, the April 2021 proposal for corporate sustainability reporting directive adopted by the EU Commission sets common European reporting rules for more than 50,000 companies to report sustainability information in both a consistent and comparable manner. Companies must also report according to mandatory EU sustainability reporting standards and conduct a double materiality assessment. So what is a double materiality assessment? Double materiality was first introduced by the EU Commission as part of the 2019 non-binding guidelines, a non-financial reporting update. Under this concept, ESG creates risks and opportunities that are material from a financial or an impact perspective or both. For these reasons, as the directive explains, companies have to report about how sustainability issues affect their business and about their own impact on people and the environment. A double materiality assessment does not require two separate assessments or matrices, but it does require gathering evidence, assessing and explaining why issues are material from the impact for its shareholders and the perspective or from the financial perspective. Based on the preliminary examination of methodology used by earlier adopters of double materiality, a process based on five steps has been proposed. Step one, identification through collection of data across multiple sources. The initial step of materiality assessment is the identification of a broad universe of potentially material issues. Referencing multiple sources is essential to minimize the risk of overlooking any emerging issues and engaging a comprehensive and credible analysis. Step two, assessing evidence of impact and financial materiality. Double materiality involves explaining issues that are material from an impact and or financial perspective. In practical terms, the initial broad universe of potentially material issues should be analyzed to identify evidence of materiality from both points of view. Number three, engagement with internal and external stakeholders, including boards. When it comes to engaging internal stakeholders, board members and executives play a crucial role in the materiality process as they define the boundaries of accountability of the organization. From a business strategy perspective, a double materiality assessment helps management, senior leaders and board members understand and distinguish between outward impacts and inward dependencies. Step four, reporting and audit of the process and results. 
A systematic and documented assessment process is a must-have, given the wealth of evidence such as the process entails and the mandatory third-party limited assurance introduced by CSRD. When preparing double materiality assessment disclosures, the following questions should be contemplated. What sources of information were analyzed for each material issue? What is the evidence that demonstrates financial materiality? How was the evidence presented and discussed with executive leadership? And what is the process of monitoring dynamic materiality? Step five, monitoring the evolution of material issues in a dynamic way. The European Financial Reporting Advisory Group indicates that sustainability risk may generate obligations in due course. However, it is a progressive evolution where financial materiality may increase over time until there's sufficient ground to disclose a risk and to recognize the liability. In light of this, it's critical for companies to build a structured process to track how materiality dynamically evolves over time. Such an approach requires continuous monitoring of sustainability issues, the integration in the risk register, and detailed annual reporting and board oversight. Tom, back to you. So Jay, next up we have an article from our good friend Mike Volkoff over on his blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, where he really talks about some of the traps and in internal investigations. And, and Jay, I must say, this is obviously a blog from someone who has done internal investigations and faced several of these pressures. And uh, there's, there's numerous stakeholders uh, in every corporation and numerous stakeholders in every investigation. And Mike goes through really each one of those and how they can influence your uh, investigation. Uh, certainly, uh, if it's a significant matter, the board of directors may be involved and with a special oversight committee and uh, boards usually want things done in a straightforward manner, but to support the uh, independence of the board and the progress of the investigation. But of course, those boards want to be protected. Uh, that may be separate and apart from senior management who uh, tries really to influence the decision in a variety of ways or the investigation, I should say in a variety of ways, uh, either through uh, demanding constant updates or um, actually trying to influence the decision. Of course, uh, 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 the people that are being investigated may feel like they're being thrown under the bus and they may uh, lash out or, or bring forward information or even go directly to a regulator. They can go to the Securities and Exchange Commission or other regulator, or if they're a criminal, potential criminal liability, they can go directly to the um, uh, relevant legal authorities and then um, uh, really uh, could hurt an investigation. Of course, investigators may be working with uh, government regulators at the Securities and Exchange Commission or the Department of Justice if it's an FCPA matter. And so there may be overlaid interests by the regulators that not antithetical to the investigation, but may not appear to be in line with what the investigation itself is looking at. So lots of different stakeholders that could be involved and could have disparate interests. And Mike really lays those out and points out some of the, the pitfalls uh, from each one of those. What do you have for us next? Uh, next, I have a real interesting article about what ethics refugees can teach us about ethics and compliance. This comes to us from Richard Schell, a Wharton professor at my alma mater, and it's published in the Corporate Compliance Insight blog. 
As a senior member of the Wharton School faculty, Richard Schell has noticed a new pattern emerging from discussions with students in his required MBA course on law, ethics, and responsibility. More of these students are telling stories about quitting their last jobs to escape toxic bosses and work cultures they felt powerless to change. This has come up often enough that he now has a name for these students, ethics refugees. Many followed a simple motto, stay silent and stay safe. They kept their experiences carefully hidden from their former employers on their way out. Why did they do this? They did not want to create any unnecessary obstacles that may complicate the escape route that they had so carefully planned. Bad behavior is not the exclusive preserve of any industry, and the pandemic seems to have made these problems worse. In the 2020 Annual State of Ethics and Compliance in the Workforce Survey by the Ethics and Compliance Initiative, ECI, it is revealed that 63% of middle managers and 51% of top managers reported pressure in the last year to compromise their ethical standards. Here are five rules for managing ethical conflicts, which Richard offers his students so they will be better prepared to stand and fight rather than cut and run. Number one, bring your conscience to work every day. His ethics refugees have reminded him that for individuals, the battle for an ethical culture is won and lost at this very basic level. Does the day-to-day -day conduct at the office, the part that takes place behind closed doors between bosses, employees, or late night among pairs, does this align with common sense intuitions about right and wrong? Rule number two, there's no such thing as an unimportant conflict over values. One of his students told Richard that their parents had taught them never do evil just because it's a small evil. I think there is a secret to a strong ethical culture in this statement. By treating all ethical issues, even small ones, as important, people from habits of action, people form habits of action that make the larger problem easier to confront and handle. Number three, be morally humble. Do not forget that good people can be pressured to do bad things. Sharon Watkins, the internal auditor who helped bring to life the massive Enron corporate fraud in 2001, once said that you need only three things to create an ethical crisis, pressure, opportunity, and a face-saving rationalization. Richard helps his students classify the pressures they will face so they can recognize and reject these rationalizations that will tempt them to go astray. He advises his students to have counter-arguments prepared to meet these rationalizations on their own terms. For peer pressure, say, no, no, everybody does not do it because I don't do it. For authority and incentive pressure, say, I have free will and must make my own choices. For role pressure, say, my job description does not define who I am as a person of conscience, especially when it comes to acting against core values. And for systemic pressures, systemic change always begins at the individual level. Rule number four, never act alone, leverage the power of two. Isolation was one of the things almost all of his ethics refugees suffered from before they decided to quit. The research on peer and authority pressure conclusively shows that the support of one additional person exponentially increases the odds of effective action. And rule number five, prepare for a marathon, not a sprint. Use the OUDA loop. Napoleon Bonaparte is once to have said, by summing up his military approach, engage and then see what happens. Richard introduced a simple model based on the tactics combat vitals use 
Del Uda Loop. The acronym stands for Observe, Own, Decide, and Only Then Act. And then you get ready for the loop. At the loop stage, you see what happens, you make adjustments, and you keep moving forward. Richard Schell's students at Wharton have offered him a unique window into their collective experience. His conclusion, these are people every firm should want to welcome into their ranks because they care deeply enough about the values to trade their financial security for a chance to pivot for truly ethical culture. We'll be right back after this message. Jay, you have just cited to perhaps my favorite word ever, a loop. <laughs> so kudos. Didn't know you had that in you. Didn't know that was part of the, the Wharton thing. Very good. Uh, the second uh, person who's, uh, other person who's his most favorite word is uh, Matt Kelly. So uh, kudos to Mr. Rosen with the a loop. Excellent. Uh, Jay, next up, we have uh, part four of Karsten Tam's fabulous five-part series on design, thinking, meeting, ethics, and compliance. And today he talks about, or rather in this post on LinkedIn, which of course we cited to, he talks about running a design sprint. There's really three parts to this, problem discovery, idea discovery, and solution discovery. He's got a case study of a uh, ENC professional, a CCO, who uh, used this process in her company, and he details that um, and really talks about uh, the steps you need to take of uh, defining uh, the problem and then brainstorming ideas and then selecting the most promising, putting uh, prototypes in place, testing those prototypes, and then rolling out. So once again, Karsten um, really uh, lays out uh, the protocols of design thinking in a way that I think every compliance professional can understand and more importantly use. Uh, I got so fired up by this that uh, Carson and I are going to start a design thinking podcast. So um, look look for that coming out probably in uh, early September. But once again, part four of a five-part series. So we'll be interested to see uh, part five. Jay, what do you have for us next? Uh, next up, Amazon is tagged for a $746 million, million euro for GDPR violations. This comes to us uh, from a Cordry Compliance Client Alert from our good friend from Everything Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, and his colleague, Catherine Ayers. Client Alert, Amazon fined 746 million euros by the Luxembourg Data Protection. Here's what we know so far. The fine came to light from a disclosure on July 29th of this year that Amazon made to the US SEC in accordance with listing rules. This is becoming an increasingly common way for the public to first hear about sizable data protection fines. For example, ICO's action against BA and Marriott first became public through a stock exchange filing. It seems that the CNPD had told Amazon of their fine on the 16th of July. We do not even know yet which GDPR provisions Amazon has been found to have infringed, but it appears that the action came off the back of a complaint in, a 2018, in 2018 from French privacy rights group La Quadrature du Net. Uh, Amazon had its EU headquarters in Luxembourg, making CNPD its lead supervisory authority. The action relates to Amazon Europe's core targeted advertising practices. Amazon has focused on the security aspect and denied that there has been any data leak. 
So what's the relevant context here? This is much bigger than just a single, quote, data breach, unquote. It strikes at the heart of the system used by big tech companies to target consumers with advertising. These types of advertising practices involve widespread sharing of high volume of user data and numerous players across the ad tech ecosystem. And the main concern raised by the regulators and privacy groups centered on two things. First, the inadequacy of technical and organizational controls. And second, the challenges associated with obtaining valid user content. Where does the fine sit in comparison with other GDPR fines? Until now, the highest fine was 50 million euros against Google. H&M was fined 35 million uh, euros by the German Data Protection Authority, and British Airways and Marriott, as we stated above, were fined around 22 million euros. Does Luxembourg have a track record for GDR enforcement? The simple answer is no. There's been no public GDR enforcement in Luxembourg until June of this year. Since then, the CMPD have announced 26 decisions, including six where fines have been levied. What will happen next? We'll need to take a wait-and-see approach to see if the decision is published or how much additional information is released into the public domain. We will also need to see the basis of appeal, as we've said before, often have a good chance of success under GDPR. Fines are, not, are also not the only enforcement action the regulator can take. For example, injunctions can be ordered to compel an organization to take action or to cease certain actions. If Amazon is forced to change its data practices, this is likely to be way more disruptive to the business than a simple nine-figure fine. Tom? Jay, uh, next up, we have another article on internal investigations, and this comes to us from Jacqueline Jager, our colleague over at Compliance Week. Jay, I should also note that for the month of August, Compliance Week is having an open house, which means the uh, Firewall is down, so uh, you can. Uh, we typically have to say that a subscription is required to review Compliance Week articles, but this month we get to say, go check it out. So uh, if you're not a subscriber to Compliance Week, go check out Jacqueline's article and everything else that's available on the Compliance Week website. But she looks at factors which are driving change in the corporate investigation process. And unlike Mike's uh, uh, article or his blog, based on his experience, this is based on a Compliance Week survey. And it details the types of investigations that are ongoing, regulatory investigations, cyber uh, third party and, and data privacy lead the way. But many of the pain points as well, which are data volumes and uh, collecting the data uh, and then being able to both anal uh, analyze the data and then use it going forward. Technology is still a, a critical area, but uh, many uh, investigators report that they are manually going through data. So uh, a lot of interesting information and will give you an idea of really a benchmark for your program and to see where you might be in it and uh, really get some ideas on how you can improve your process. And Jay, I would say that the, the biggest improvement is gonna be once again around data and technology. What do you have for us next, Jay? Uh, now we have another good friend, uh, Scott Moritz, who's written a piece in LinkedIn. He self-published it, and the article is called The Achilles Heel of Compliance. According to Stanford University's law school, FCPA, the FCPA Clearinghouse, between 2001 and 2019, there were 268 FCPA enforcement actions, 
and 246 of them, or 91.7% of the bribes, were paid by third parties as opposed to officers or employees of the defendant company. So we're talking about sales agents, distributors, JV partners, resellers, freight forwarders, custom brokers, lawyers and accountants, and they all make up the third party intermediaries who are implicated in these bribery prosecutions. Really though, do we hear or read about the names of third party bribe payers or the company's name? On a recent episode of Fraud Eat Strategy podcast, Scott spoke about the FCPA, spoke to this FCPA luminary and Foley and Lardner partner, David Simon. The FCPA is a peculiar law. It is slanted heavily towards punishing bribe paying companies and not the recipients. Most bribes are paid by intermediaries and their identities are seldom disclosed. They frequently are not charged in the prosecution of the company on whose behalf the bribes were paid. This fact is founded in some public policy of not naming persons that aren't charged in crimes, the famous unindicted co-conspirators that we hear about in the news. But transparency is becoming much more important in a lot of areas of compliance, and now may have exact be the exact time to begin the practice of naming bribe-paying intermediaries to improve FCPA compliance. Indeed, this would be a positive way to promote the goals of FCPA enforcement. It's a longstanding policy of the DOJ and the SEC not to name uncharged individuals. Third-party intermediaries are by far the highest risk within the FCPA compliance world, and it is where the action is, and this is where companies can go wrong. It's also important to give companies all of the tools necessary to get this part of their FCPA probe room right and to give companies the tools to do so. Both the SEC and DOJ have exceptionally high expectations from companies from a compliance perspective. Among those expectations is that companies know if they're hiring intermediaries with a propensity to bribe. The benefits of naming bribe payers would be immeasurable. It would give companies who are trying to act in good faith, trying hard and investing in tremendous resources into avoiding bad actor intermediaries, another powerful tool in their toolbox. While, this may be, while there may be some due process concerns, they are probably lower in most circumstances since the intermediaries are typically non-U.S. citizens or companies. Regulators could easily set up a system that would include some due process protections. Investigative due diligence is a tool in the FCPA compliance program arsenal. The fact that bribe-paying intermediaries who played a role in one or more major FCP cases but are not being afforded the kind of protections as though they're in the witness protection program is undermining transparency surrounding the payment of bribes. The timing of creating such a database of bribe-paying intermediaries coincides nicely with the recent passage of the Corporate Transparency Act and a global push for increased transparency. Having such a list will make investigative due diligence appreciably more effective since the identity of bribe-paying intermediaries and the individuals behind them will bring some much-needed relief to the beleaguered chief compliance officers struggling to manage their third-party risks. A very thoughtful read, and we link to it in the show notes. Tom? So, Jay, I think it's uh, well-known within the compliance profession that you are a recovering screenwriter. Uh, did that screenwriting career blend over to television, or were you strictly a movie guy? Um, I did have some uh, time in the chair at UTV at the University of Pennsylvania, so I did some TV too, and I also actually uh, did some TV broadcast uh, 
reporting. But I would say uh, most of uh, most of my my chops were cut doing film. But what do you have to tell us about Ted Lasso? Well, uh, and I really wanted to use that to introduce Ted Lasso. First, uh, I want to give a kudos call out to the author of this blog post, Harry Casson, and appeared, of course, on the FCPA blog. Harry and I watched the same show. We saw the same thing and we had the same thoughts. He wrote a blog on it. Uh, I did not. So kudos to Harry. And uh, part of the story from this week's or the past week's Ted Lasso, it uh, releases or drops every Friday night on Apple TV, uh, was uh, allegations of corruption in the energy space. And, um, oh, we have a guest. Come on in. No, no, no. Bring them all on in. Ah. She disappeared. Um, for you <laughs> listeners at home, we just had a guest on the podcast, but apparently uh, she was too shy to join us. Nevertheless, uh, it was a environment environmental uh, pollution claim in Nigeria by a fictional oil company who owned a sponsor of the soccer team. One of the stars of the team is from Nigeria and appeared in the sponsor's commercial. Um, and uh, he was chastised by his father uh, for doing so. And then um, uh, in a, uh, a series of events, the team covered over the uh, logo of the sponsor. Uh, the owner of the team called the sponsor directly and the sponsor told him to fire the player, which she did not. So it was a really uh, good example of uh, a real life. It, it was fictional, of course, but it's based on real life of environmental uh, pollution in Nigeria and corruption of Nigerian officials allowing it to be covered up. So uh, I don't know if life imitates art or art imitates life, but uh, Harry's point, I thought, Jay, was very proficient that um, uh being involved in uh, pollution or corruption certainly can get you in trouble with regulators, certainly can have uh, FCPA or other legal implications, but it can have wider implications for um, advertising, for your reputation, and it can be several levels away from where the original pollution or corruption occurred. So kudos to Harry. Uh, I thought he drew some great lessons from the show uh, if you have not seen Ted Lasso, I can only say get the Apple TV. It was uh, at the um, a recommendation of Karen Woody on an Everything Compliance podcast. And my wife and I sat down and watched season one. It was just hilarious. It's a fish out of water in the very best way. Uh, we've started season two. It is some of the best screenwriting I have heard um, in quite some time. And this is the alliterate and the illusions are just incredible. So kudos to everyone on Ted Lasso and kudos to Harry for draw, teasing out this lesson for us, Jay. What's our last story of the day, Jay? Um, this is entitled by Tom, 100 Bottles of Booze on the Wall, 100 Bottles of Booze. Comes to us from our friend of the podcast, Jeff Kaplan, who writes in his Conflict of Interest blog. Uh, according to recent media accounts, the State Department is looking into the whereabouts of a $5,800 bottle of Japanese whiskey that was gifted to former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. The government of Japan gifted the whiskey to Pompeo in 2019, the document says, but it's unclear if Pompeo himself received the whiskey or if a staff member accepted it. Pompeo said Thursday that he never received the bottle of whiskey and that he has no idea it was missing. 
Time will tell what happened here, or maybe not. Jeff's best guess is that he did get the bottle for the presumably simple reason that none of his subordinates would want to risk hiding it from him. In the meantime, this is a good occasion to revisit conflict of interest, which is an area fraught in the gifts and entertainment. Here, let's consider two items. First, there is the issue of double standards. Jeff once asked students in an executive MBA class if they thought their employer organization should have restrictive gifts policies. Nearly all said that such policies were unnecessary as the students were certain they would not be corrupted by receipt of gifts from suppliers or customers. Jeff then asked if the school should allow teachers to give gifts and entertainment from students. And as you can imagine, the response was very different. Note that the double standards aren't always a bad thing, but often they are. Second, there's the argument that the recipient wouldn't sell himself for relatively small amounts of monies or goods. This issue was raised several years ago in a particularly grim way by a study which, quote, found that both deaths from opioid overdose and opioid prescriptions rose in areas of the country where physicians received more opioid-related marketing from pharmaceutical companies, such as consulting fees and free meals. Another study showed that the receipt of a single industry-sponsored meal with a mean value of less than $20 associated with the prescription of promoted brand-name drugs at significantly higher rates to Medicare beneficiaries. Note that while these studies took place in the life science areas, they are potentially relevant to, other, to promoting compliance and gifts and entertainment in industries of all kinds. Finally, a study by Julian Zlatev and Todd Rogers contributed in a potentially important way to our knowledge of what makes giving gifts and providing entertainment effective. They found, somewhat surprisingly, that providing the recipient with an opportunity to return a gift increased the likelihood that she would respond positively to whatever the giver was seeking to have her do. This is a phenomenon called the return, returnable reciprocity, and it may work by triggering feelings of guilt in recipients who have the opportunity to but do not return the grift. None of these prove Pompeo's guilt in the whiskey affair, but it suggests that the affair might have been part of a larger tawdry picture. Tom, let's take a look at this week's podcasts and events. So, Jay, first of all, extraordinarily thrilled to announce the 200th anniversary of uh, Innovation and Compliance Show. And I celebrated with Dan Skolnick from Acuity, and we talked about fighting financial crime. It's a new month, so I have a new guest on The Compliance Life. It's our good friend, Courtney Nordrum, my co-host of Survive and Thrive. She's also the CCO of what we in the South would say is the Deluxe Corporation. And she has a really interesting journey uh, from Red Wing, Minnesota, to Israel and beyond in episode one. Richard Lummis and I are continuing our exploration of Plutarch's lives. For you history aficionados out there, uh, we were going to do a 10-part series, but we've fallen in love with Plutarch's lives so much, we're just going to do the whole book. So uh, if you love Roman and Greek history, this is the podcast for you. Jay, you have some announcements for us? Sure do. Uh, for the month of August, we have a new podcast from the affiliated monitors, uh, Ethics, uh, rather, Integrity Through Compliance podcast. Uh, normally, each month, we introduce our readers and listeners to members of the AMI team. This month, in addition to our web spotlight feature with my colleague, Deanne Conroy, who is a compliance solutions manager, uh, she also appears in a podcast, which we released on Wednesday, 
And you can find that either through the show notes here or going directly to affiliatedmonitors.com. Uh, next up, Compliance Week is having a, an open house, as, as Tom mentioned before. So please uh, feel free to drop behind the firewall and check out the entire collection at no charge. We have a link to it in the show notes. KT Integrity Sepeda Roland will moderate an ABA webinar, Managing Compliance Under Pressure. This will be on August 17th, and you can register through the, for the podcast uh, through the show note links. And finally, Tom's Compliance Handbook, the second edition, has been released. We have links to uh, learn more about it. And Tom, uh, any updates on what's happening with the Compliance Handbook? Yes, it's here, Jay. Uh, we have it in our hands now, available for purchase. It's uh, a solid book. Uh, doubles as a book stop if you need uh, some uh, <clears throat> additional uses and to multi-purpose it, but uh, extraordinarily thrilled. LexisNexis did a great job. So the Compliance Handbook, I'm um, going to have some testimonials come out about it next week. And uh, Jay, I'll have a uh, professionally produced uh, advertisement for it. So I know you'll be uh, interested to see that with a, a special commentary from the noted compliance aficionado, Harris Fox. So watch out for it next week. You want to take was, us home? Yeah, I already wish it was next week now with that kind of buildup. Tom Fox, as you know, is the voice of compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And as always, I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and I can be reached at J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. We'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 264 for the week ending August 13th, 2021, the Infrastructure Bill Edition. We appreciate you spending part of your week or weekend with us, and we look forward to speaking to you next week when we will tell you all that is happening on This Week in FCPA. Have a great weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.